I've had two projects on the go until recently, and they're intertwined, um, but also distinct. Um, one of them, which is mentioned on your flyer, is now published, and it's called the East India Company at Home. Um, but you needn't buy it, because it's available as a free download from UCL Press or from JSTOR. And it looks at the material culture of the East India Company in the context of the English, Scottish, and Welsh country house, and tries to argue for the ways in which what the National Trust and English Heritage try to project as an iconic English um, material formation um, is in fact not only deeply inflected, but in many ways predicated upon British imperialism, including the East India Company. So if you want to be one of the more than 2,000 people who have downloaded it in 77 countries in the past two months, just go to UCL Press and click download, and it's all there for you as a PDF. Or you could even buy it. But um, enough of that. This paper is a version of a chapter in a, a monograph um, rather than an edited collection. Um, and it's um, trying to tell family stories about the East India Company, focusing on the British and the um, British East India Company and its baggy, reticulated, complex, complicated families of rule. The ways in which the needs and desires of families sent the British to India in the first place, the difficult, odd, complicated, contesting things that happened to family because of engagement with India, what they did with their property, with the loot that they brought back, but also, and this paper comes out of the last section of the book, the ways in which the British understood, misunderstood, and thought about and with the Indian princely family as they were thinking about how to do empire. So the book is in three segments. People, which was about why the people of the East India Company families went to India when death was the most obvious consequence of doing so. Property, um, how they managed what they did with their property, how property inspired them. And then politics, which is this last section where I look at princely family politics and the ways in which these East India Company families and the military men and the political men uh, they included thought about empire by thinking about family. So I suppose I would say in some ways, historiographically, the project is a friendly critique of the, to my mind, obsession of British historians with um, empire in general and empire in India in particular as being a form of liberalism and a form of modernity. Um, and looking at the family to critique liberal imperialism as a dominant modality in the historiography. So, enough of that, let's get on with the paper. First exhibited in London by the East India Company in 1808, Tipu's Tiger is now among the most well-recognized objects displayed in the Victoria and Albert Museum. Combining Indian artistic motifs and European mechanical workmanship, the life-size tiger conceals a pipe organ in its ornately decorated body, which straddles a prone figure dressed in the costume of a British officer of the 1790s. The piece was commissioned by Tipu Sultan, ruler of the princely kingdom of Mysore in South India. Its provenance is said to reflect Tipu's deep enmity for the British, 
who had taken two of his sons hostage in 1792 as one of the humiliating conditions of the treaty that marked his defeat in the Third Anglo-Mysore War. Its commissioning also reputedly signalled Tipu's satisfaction upon learning, shortly after this defeat, that the only son of General Sir Hector Munro, the Sultan's prime antagonist in the Second Anglo-Mysore War, had been mauled to death by a tiger when out shooting in Bengal. Known to his contemporaries as the Tiger of Mysore, Tipu Sultan stands at the intersection of two interrelated narratives of nation formation. In modern British history, the East India Company's protracted military engagements with Tipu and his father, Hyder Ali, mark a turning point in the emergence of imperial and national identity. As Linda Colley has argued, the four successive Anglo-Mysore Wars, which culminated in Tipu's death at Sringapatam in 1799, saw, quote, a vital reconfiguration of both imperial and national ideology, in which British military officers active in East India Company campaigns emerged as, quote, gallant heroes whose sacrifice and sufferings exemplified the nation's manhood at its best. Tipu Sultan likewise features as a pivotal figure in the historiography of the modern Indian nation state, which threw off Britain's imperial yoke in 1947. Thus, Muhammad Moinuddin's analysis of the Sultan's <coughs> legacies in a volume specifically dedicated to the memory of freedom fighters asserts that, quote, Tipu's heroic death closed a long struggle against colonialism and underscores Tipu's nationalist preoccupations. I won't go into the anachronism of that analysis. Although these two schools of historical analysis differ sharply in their interpretation of which nation Tipu Sultan's reign was instrumental in forging, they share more fundamentally an underlying approach to the emergence of the nation state. Focused on the actions and subsequent representations of elite male individuals engaged in military combat in the public sphere, both British and Indian interpretations portray Tipu Sultan's defeat as a turning point in the transition from early modern to modern politics in Europe and on the subcontinent, both depict the East India Company's campaigns against the Sultan of Mysore as a pivotal phase in which princely rule lost irrevocable ground to the emergent nation state. By locating Tipu Sultan's princely politics within the received narrative of the modern fiscal military state, historians, I think, have obscured the foundational ways in which the princely family shaped and gave meaning to Indian and British practices of imperial rule. To be sure, images of Tipu's family have long been central to British and Indian interpretations of the Sultan's contests with the East India Company. Acknowledged as a powerful visual metaphor, the family has, however, figured in this dominant interpretation as a representational device for justifying empire, rather than as an entrenched and dynamic system of political practices through which power was constituted. Like the harem itself, the family features an extant historiography as a private sphere of social and cultural reproduction, a domain spatially and functionally distinct from a public realm of politics, modernity, nation, and state. And I'm writing here from the perspective of the British historiography predominantly. In what follows, I seek to reinterpret the nature 
of the East India Company and Indian conflicts by reinserting the family into the center of the public sphere of princely politics on the subcontinent. For both British and Indian political antagonists, I argue, thinking and acting like a state required thinking and acting like a family across a wide spectrum of domains that stretched first from the harem to the battlefield and ultimately from the Indian battlefield to the country house in Britain. By relegating the imperial family, whether British or Indian, to the private sphere outside state politics or to a predominantly representational rather than a structural role, Historians have fundamentally mistaken the nature of British imperial politics in these years. To develop this argument, I explore a series of conceptual couplets, public and private, object and subject, family and state, which operated both in tandem and in conflict in the East India Company's campaigns against Tipu Sultan, his predecessors, and his descendants. I begin with a brief overview of the public politics of the princely family in the Mughal Empire before the rise of the East India Company as a territorial power. Turn from that topic to the political significance of the family in the Anglo-Mysore Wars. Examine next the fate of Tipu's sons and daughters in British hands in the early 19th century after their father's defeat and conclude very schematically, I warn you in advance, by linking the structure and function of the princely family in India to the structure and function of the imperial family at home in Britain. Founded by Central Asian invasion, invaders in 1526, India's Islamic Mughal Empire reached its apogee in the 1670s. At its height, the Mughal Empire stretched from North India to Bengal and the Deccan, claiming sovereignty over perhaps 150 million subjects. Marital diplomacy, consolidated by formal systems of gift exchange, marked Mughal politics from an early date. As new territories were conquered, the Mughal sovereign's sway over lesser rulers within his domains was signaled by public ceremonies in which the emperor presented um, uh, an array of gifts, horses, elephants, slaves, gold, jewels, and always luxurious robes of honor, known as kilats, to his political dependents. Consolidating the emperor's power by signaling his largesse, these ceremonial presentations made the mantle of Mughal authority physically manifest to subjects through objects. The presentation of kilats to their followers was adopted in turn by the network of princes, both Muslim and Hindu, over whom the emperor ruled, often complemented by the recipient's bestowal of a counter gift upon his superior, ceremonial gifting was widely adopted as a technology of rule throughout South Asia under successive Mughal emperors and indeed into the company era. Further bolstering the political obligations that were sealed by the exchange of these ceremonial gifts were the ties of lineage that flowed through the exchange of women. Marriage to the daughters and sisters of conquered rulers provided Mughal emperors with an essential mechanism for consolidating their grip on new territories won through battle. Reigning from 1556 to 1605, Emperor Akbar established marital diplomacy at the heart of Mughal rule. Akbar's son and successor was thus born to a Hindu princess from his new Rajput domains, as was that son's successor, Shah Jahan. 
Islamic conventions of polygamy permitted the Mughal ruler as many as four official or permanent wives, considerably increasing the scope for marital diplomacy, while the unrestricted number of allowed temporary marriages, more typically contracted with women of lower status, offered opportunities to build linkages across wide-ranging social, ethnic, and geographical domains. In the 19th century European imagination, the Oriental Seraglio was to feature as a site of excessive seclusion and enervating sexual captivity, a private place divorced from public affairs. But in the 17th and 18th century Mughal harem, its enclosure notwithstanding, there was a prime site of princely politics. As K.S. Lal has argued, all Mughal emperors married Indian women, but in Akbar's reign, it became a custom of political design. Contemporaries measured the importance and status of a ruler by the extent of his seraglio, making it imperative for the king to have the largest harem as compared with that of neighboring independent rulers. At its height in Akbar's reign, the Mughal emperor's harem housed perhaps 5,000 women drawn from conquered lands that stretch from Kashmir to Golconda, from Rajasthan to Assam. The family politics of the Mughal Empire continually crossed the boundaries of public and private, for princely succession was intimately tied to the harem's control over imperial reproduction. Guarded by eunuchs, but managed by senior women, the harem housed not only the emperor's wives, concubines, daughters, and young sons, but also the hundreds of slaves and servants who sustained them. Kinship was highly dispersed in the Mughal princely family. Wet nurses who nurtured the emperor's progeny were recognized as foster mothers. Their children were accorded the status of foster siblings to the emperor's sons and daughters. Emperor Akbar evocatively described the bonds that linked him to his wet nurse's son as rivers of milk, neatly capturing the biological and emotive grounding of fictive kinship in the Mughal family. The violence inherent in Mughal succession strategies forcefully underlined the value of foster relations over blood brothers. Polygony typically produced an excess of legitimate sons, a problem exacerbated by the absence of rules regulating succession by seniority. Brotherhood was a bloody business in the Mughal Empire, as one historian has noted, for a young boy who soon came to view his biological siblings as political rivals and potential murderers. His foster brothers were, for all intents and purposes, his true brothers. Shah Jahan's paternal and fraternal power contests in the 17th century vividly illustrate the fratricidal nature of Mughal succession. Having himself murdered one of his father's elder sons to seize power in 1627, Shah Jahan sought to secure the succession for his own favorite son, Dara. But the emperor's younger son, who loathed his father's uh, favorite, imprisoned the Shah in 1658, captured and beheaded his brother Dara in 1659, and ordered the execution of two younger brothers in 1661. Wives and their kin played instrumental roles in sustaining aspiring Mughal princes and established Mughal rulers in this fraught familial context. Many Mughal noblewomen exercised political power on behalf of princely husbands. Their fathers and brothers, who were by their bloodline outside the line of princely succession, were conspicuous in India among the ranks of emperor's chief ministers. 
Family thus lay at the center, not the periphery of Mughal imperial politics. Historian Indrani Chatterjee rightly warns against the dangers of treating the family and the state as discrete and antithetical entities in the early modern past. This salutary caution is no less relevant in the era of Tipu Sultan. For as Chatterjee observes, in the 18th and 19th centuries in South Asia, there was no political, economic, or religious relationship that was not simultaneously experienced or represented as familial. By situating Tipu and his family fortunes against the backdrop of Mughal politics, we can begin to understand the centrality of kin relations to the East India Company's successive wars in Mysore. Already weakened by its internecine succession disputes, the Mughal regime was further destabilized from the 1680s by internal rebellion and external attack. Sensing the Mughal overlord's vulnerability, Maratha chieftains initiated a protracted campaign of resistance which dramatically reduced the sway of imperial rule. In central India, the rulers of Hyderabad joined the Maratha campaigns, further eroding the Mughal emperor's territorial base. Persian interlopers invaded from the north, sacking Delhi in 1739. To the south, European encroachments into Mughal territories escalated with creeping Dutch, French, and British footholds, augmenting established Portuguese power bases in Bombay, Surat, and Goa. Emboldened by these developments, the Muslim military adventurer Haider Ali, commander-in-chief to the Hindu dynasty that ruled Mysore, seized control of this princely state in 1760. Determined to throw off the remaining vestiges of Mughal power while nipping the territorial ambitions of the English East India Company in the bud, Hyder Ali precipitated the first Anglo-Mysore War in 1767 and succeeded in dictating terms to the defeated British outside the gates of Madras two years later. In three further Anglo-Mysore Wars stretching to 1799, first Hyder Ali and then his son Tipu Sultan sought to establish Mysore as an independent princely state ruled by their own now newly royal family line. Historians have emphasized the modernizing diplomatic and military tactics that underpinned Hyder Ali and Tipu Sultan's rise to power in Mysore, but little attention has been paid to, the to their conspicuous use of established Muslim and Mughal familial strategies to carve out and defend a hereditary state. Yet even as they rejected Mughal claims to sovereignty and accepted both new European weaponry and new European allies, first Haider and then Tipu embraced and elaborated upon the policies of marital diplomacy first elaborated by Akbar in the 16th century. Now typically dismissed by European historians as antiquated vestiges of pre-colonial, pre-modernity, Haider and Tipu's family politics were recognized by their European contemporaries as well-calculated strategies and practices that animated their novel claims to rule. I begin by analyzing a substantial late 18th century British biography of Tipu in which this recognition is repeatedly made manifest and then use a range of archival materials to examine key incidents in which both the Princely and the East India Company's family, the liminal position between private and public spheres can be seen to have shaped Indian and British statecraft in Mysore. 
published anonymously in London in 1799 by an officer of the East India Company, the authentic memoirs of Tipu Sultan sought to reveal to a British audience the characteristic building blocks of Hyder and Tipu's princely state. The memoirs begin by underlining the rootedness of Muslim princely power in heredity, sexuality, and family. According to the manners of the East, it began, the great and despotic usurper, Hyder Ali, made it his first care to engrave in the minds of his son, Tipu, the general qualifications of Indian chiefs, ambition and ferocity, the author reported. So we start with politics. Tipu gave early proofs of these Indian virtues and was always admitted into his father's council, so we've got a kind of a lineage developing there. His paternal schooling in politics was complemented by Tipu's sexual education in the seraglio, which the memoir's author depicted as an integral component of the father's strategy for securing the son's rule in Mysore. Tipu was much attracted to women, as his father, for every leisure hour was spent with a mistress, and at these intervals Tipu discovered much gaiety and gallantry, which are there esteemed sure indications of future greatness the character of an amorist being supposed to approach that of a hero, as it is always believed that love and valor are united, the author observed of Indian princely rule. He had several illegitimate children, the memoirs added, adducing a biographical nugget that further substantiated Tipu's twofold political and familial potency. In the 223 pages of biographical information, misinformation, and conjecture that followed, the memoir's author returned again and again to the central place of family relations in the military strategy and politics of South India. It drew readers' particular attention to Hyder and Tipu's construction of a family state. The text described the Sultan's fort in the town of Sringapatam as the capital of Tipu's family in the Mysore kingdom and highlighted the prince's reliance on his male kin to consolidate the succession after Hyder Ali's death in the Second anglo mysore War in 1782. Tipu Sultan, on the death of his father, held a consultation with his brother, Karim, and gave different appointments to his two sons, um, Abdul Kali and Tafi Haider, also Haider Saab, one of his illegitimate sons, the memoirs claimed. The author was at pains to trace military and political continuity between the generations through the male bloodline, Although he was superior to his father in military talents, the memoirs observed, Tipu exhibited stronger traits of despotism and cruelty. His father's virtues were, however, not buried in his tomb, for many of them still survived in his son. And there's a story of narrative and bloodline that runs through this biography. Although entitled Authentic Memoirs of Tipu Sultan, this text provides a profoundly misleading account of Tipu's family biography. Fraternal relations in princely Mysore, as in the earlier Mughal Empire from which Hyder and Tipu drew their inspiration, were notoriously poisonous. Tipu's elder brother Karim indeed appears to have feigned madness to escape his ambitious younger brother's attention as a potential rival upon his father's death. Tipu's son, Abdul Khalik, referred to in the quote, born in 1782, which is the year of the death of his grandfather, was moreover in the care of wet nurses, not in command of his father's soldiers in the year of Haider's death. <coughs> the author's Solomonic division of Tipu's actual eldest illegitimate son, Fadi Haider, into an imagined, imagined progeny, a legitimate Tuffy Haider and a bastard Haider Saab, 
moreover, speaks eloquently to the fundamental illegibility of the princely family to British observers, a theme to which I shall return. My intention here is not to suggest that the memoirs offer an accurate account of the history of the princely family in Mysore, far from it. Rather, this text opens a revealing window onto how princely power was understood by the East India Company to be constituted as family power, and the term family, not lineage, is the one they repeatedly use. The mendacity of this text's reading of Tipu's family history illuminates rather than detracts from the veracity, its veracity as a source for the company historian. Many of the text's component elements further can be traced back in archival records to earlier direct observations by company officials of Tipu's politics, a process of detection that demonstrates the pervasive presence of familial conceptions of the Indian princely state among British men on the spot. Contemporary company interpretations of the taking as hostages of Tipu's two sons, Abdul Khaliq and Moisa Din, by a triumphant Lord Cornwallis in 1792, vividly illustrates this point. Here, contemporary analysis of military and diplomatic disputes between British and imperial powers repeatedly turned to the problematic politics of family, to the core questions of legitimacy and illegitimacy, public and private, subject and object. Hostage taking had been endemic as a practice in Mughal succession disputes, and it remained a vital instrument of political negotiation in the successor states that broke free from Mughal rule in the 18th century. As a child, Tipu himself had suffered a period of captivity with his mother as a consequence of Hyder Ali's military ambitions. The insistence in 1792 of Cornwallis and his Maratha and Hyderabad allies that Tipu must provide security for the territories he had ceded to them in the Treaty of Sringapatam by delivering over two of his sons was draconian but hardly anomalous in the wider context of the Anglo-Mysore Wars. In British histories of these contests, the image of Tipu's hostage sons has long enjoyed iconic status, standing within British interpretations as a vital moment of transfer between pre-modern despotic princely regimes and a modern reform-minded imperial state um, figured as Cornwallis in the iconography. The authentic memoir's description of the moments before the boys were torn from the bosom of their family, a scene set in the sanctity of the harem, dwelt upon the domestic foundations of the sultan's <coughs> power. Although it cut Tipu to the heart to part with the boys, yet warrior-like, he took leave of them without a tear, but the mother hung on their necks for some moments. She had not sufficient patriotic fortitude to hush her maternal feelings. The boys took leave of their parents with manly firmness, firmness and seemed cheerful that they were in some measure the instruments of peace, the memoirs recounted. Instrumental objects of diplomatic exchange, Tipu's sons traversed a troubling borderland between person and thing as they crossed from the imagined private realm of the harem to the public domain of princely politics represented by Tipu's and Cornwallis's military tents on the battlefield. Detracting attention away from the children's objectification, British observers insisted that the boys' function as political hostages was in effect merely a transfer from one father to another. In accounts of this event, the Mysore diplomat 
and the British diplomats who presented the boys to Cornwallis consistently proclaim, these children were this morning the sons of my master, Tipu Sultan, their situation is now changed, they must look upon your lordship, Cornwallis, as their father. In keeping with Mughal diplomatic traditions, the transfer of these two hostage princes was accompanied by the exchange of luxurious gifts between the representatives of the two hostile powers. Cornwallis, as the commander of the victorious British forces, initiated the gift exchange, presenting each boy with a gold watch. And I don't here have um, examples of all of the actual um, gifts, but the palanquin, which I'll come to in a moment, is the real thing. Tipu's sons, reportedly aged eight and five at the time, responded by presenting Cornwallis with Persian swords. He reciprocated by giving the boys European firearms. They then proffered shawls. These stylized exchanges continued throughout the two years of the boys' captivity in Madras, ending only after Tipu had paid the swinging monetary and territorial concessions exacted by the Treaty of Sringapatam. Far more lavish than the watches and firearms presented to the captives in 1792 were the gifts conferred on Tipu's sons by Cornwallis in 1794 when the Sultan's payment of reparations finally triggered the boy's release and return home. Moiseddin, the son said to have become the favourite prince of Cornwallis, now received, among other costly things, the most beautiful palanquin which the mechanics of India could produce, richly ornamented with solid silver and gold mouldings, decorated with emblematic devices, characteristic of the prejudices of the Mysoreans, as the authentic memoirs rhapsodize. And if you can bear that wonderful silver object in mind, it's going to come back later in the paper. Historical analysis of the captivity of Tipu's sons has focused on the rich visual iconography of Cornwallis's acceptance of the two hostages in 1792. The proliferation in Britain of these pervasive images of the boy's transfer from the harem to the governor general's paternal care worked to persuade Georgian Britons that their imperial exploits in India were predicated upon both public and private virtue. Diplomatic gifts feature in these accounts as a material and ideological means for symbolizing an appropriate sovereignty over Tipu and over Mysore. Gift-giving, however, as Natasha Eaton has cogently argued, functioned on the ground in India in much more conflicted ways than these widely circulated visual representations suggested to British audiences. Extant interpretations of imperial gifting and the Anglo-Mysore Wars, moreover, have focused too exclusively, I think, on the acceptance of diplomatic gifts. If instead we move forward in time from Cornwallis's acceptance of the hostages in 1792 to the period of their captivity in Madras, and also consider the rejection of princely gifts by East India Company officials to whom the boy's care was consigned, the complex interplay of family and state in the Anglo-Mysore Wars becomes more evident. The hostage prince's removal from Sringapatam in 1792 saw uh, care for their well-being transferred from Cornwallis to Sir Charles Oakley, governor of Madras. Oakley was a staunch advocate of Cornwallis's vision for a reformed administration of British India, 
a vision in which regular salaries for public service were to replace the baneful excesses of private trade, family patronage, and corrupt perquisites. Parliamentary anxiety about the East India Company's status as a private monopoly sanctioned by the state had increased sharply in the 1780s. Pitt's India Act of 1784 was designed to reduce the scope for corrupt dealings by East India Company officials, and Cornwallis was the first governor general appointed under its regulations. In Bengal, he had moved swiftly to restrict public officials' engagement in private trade and sought to root out all forms of corruption. Peter Marshall has observed that his policies were strongly influenced by his disdain for Indian government traditions and for Indian personnel. Cornwallis's, quote, strong aversion to the administration of natives of influence effectively created a racially divided government, whereas under Warren Hastings a mere 10 years before, Indians could still reach major administrative positions in the company's service in Bengal, Marshall has observed. The Madras presidency, over which Cornwallis's client, Sir Charles Oakley, ruled as governor, was only gradually brought within the ambit of these reforms. But Oakley had a well-established reputation in, as Cornwallis's partisan by the time the hostage princes arrived on his and his wife Helena's doorstep. Cornwallis at this time commended Oakley to the court of directors, noting his public spirit and zeal, specifically asserting that the honor and interest of the British nation will never be safe in India until it shall be established as an invariable rule that the company's servants shall be confined to public business only. Under Oakley's charge, the hostage princes entered conspicuously into public view. Displayed at dramatic performances of the Madras theater, they were now equally objects of curiosity and subjects of European rule. Unsurprisingly, Tipu Sultan sought to counter their objectification during their captivity. And he did so in part through gift giving. Once ensconced in Madras, the captive princes thus paid a public visit of ceremony to Sir George and his wife, and in the name of their father, presented the governor with a succession of princely gifts, a letter from Tipu, an elephant, a horse, a breastplate adorned with pearls, a suit of gold cloth, shawls, and an abundance of diamond jewelry. These gifted items presented Oakley and the East India Company with a political challenge. A suit of gold cloth presented to a governor by a prince was arguably a kilat, a ceremonial robe conferred by a Mughal overlord to his political dependent. Tipu, who self-consciously styled himself the Padsha, or king, was surely alive to this meaning. His gifts, readily crossing the porous boundary that connected public and private in Mughal politics, acted to diminish the boy's role as captives by reinforcing their identities as the elite sons of a ruling priest a uh, ruling prince, temporarily fostered by the governor's family. The increasingly problematic British perception of a strict line that should divide public from private further complicated the reception of this gift. Parliament's Regulatory Act of 1773 had specifically forbidden British officials in India from accepting gifts on their own behalf from Indian princes, an enactment intended to erect a barrier between their public duties and their private profits. Tipu's lavish gift-giving cannily declined to acknowledge this distinction, which was foreign to the tenets of the <coughs> Princely rule, in which private and public, family and state were conjoined. 
the East India Company, which was profoundly hostile to Parliament's efforts to curtail its political and economic activities, moreover, happily colluded with Tipu's familial reasoning. Company correspondence recorded that the necklace, the bracelets, the ring and the shawls were intended by the Sultan as a mark of respect for Lady Oakley, for the civility she had shown his, shown his children. And the horse, the elephant, only a small one, and the breastplate were presented by the two boys to the infant son of Sir Charles Oakley. Dodging the difficult issue of whether Sir Charles had in fact been presented with a kilat from Tipu, the official company interpretation sought to depoliticize the Sultan's gifts by removing them into the domestic domain of the governor's household, a family circle in which the captive sons could figure as the Oakley's children's private friends, not as Sir, Charles, Sir George's political hostages. Yet, Sir George and Lady Oakley, both of whom were staunch advocates of Cornwallis's modernizing reform politics, repeatedly refused to accept the East India Company's benign interpretation of the Sultan's presence. Although Oakley received them on the day of their public presentation, he promptly deposited Tipu's gifts in the company's official coffers. An extended battle then ensued between the Oakleys and the Court of Directors over this rejection, which was understood in London as to offer a clear insult to a prince who yet remained the East India Company's most formidable military foe in South India. In 1794, company directors wrote to inform Oakley that they had instructed their representative in Madras to wait upon Lady Oakley with the articles presented to her by Tipu's sons, of which the Honorable Court have requested her ladyship's acceptance as a mark of the company's esteem and approbation of her conduct. Sir Charles promptly wrote back to refuse these troubling objects yet again, reiterating his, quote, opinion that they sought they ought not in any circumstance to become the property of my family. He concluded by noting, my sentiments on this point continue the same, and Lady Oakley's are in perfect correspondence with them, hoping that the company would not be displeased that we do not profit by their polite intentions. Lady Oakley's presence in Madras in the 1790s, alongside her husband and together with the couple's 11 children, provides a useful reminder that the East India Company state, not unlike the Indian princely state, was predicated upon complex, extended family formations. The sister, cousin, and niece of military officers who played prominent parts in the wars against Tipu, Helena Oakley was among the many elite British wives whose political presence has been written out of modern histories of the Anglo-Mysore Wars. But, like her rejection of Tipu's lavish gifts in 1793, the hostage prince's release in 1794 reminded British observers forcibly of the salience of family politics in Tipu's domains. The authentic memoirs again captured the ways in which this recognition registered within company circles during and after the prince's captivity. During his son's captivity, Tipu passed the chief part of his time in the Zanana where he had a great many beautiful women. Those by whom he had sons were always his favorites. These ladies take their precedency accordingly, but lose it on the death of a child, the authentic memoirs asserted, before turning to the vital topic of imperial reproduction. Tipu did not make his choice by throwing a handkerchief, as is said to be the custom in Constantinople, but communicated to his chief minister the preference he intended 
and this minister officially made known his master's choice of the lady. The author's description here of the process by which Tipu's sexual partners in the harem were chosen is highly tendentious, but his statement that the selection was effective jointly by the Sultan and his public ministers accurately conveys contemporary British understandings that the fulcrum of princely power lay in successful familial reproduction. The harem accordingly was understood as a site of public power, rightly regulated by government ministers because it was instrumental to the biological and political perpetuation of Tipu's regime. Spy reports and diplomatic correspondence from these years confirm the recognition of the harem as, a, as playing a central role in constituting Tipu's family state and that this perception pervaded company's political concerns. These archival documents also suggest that the Sultan actively played upon these fears prompted by this perception. Shortly before the captive's release, company spies reported that Tipu was occupied with the celebration of his new marriage to the daughter of an Indian nobleman. Tipu's correspondence with the Governor General of India in November 1796, which is after the release of his hostage sons, made the extent of his marital ambitions palpably obvious at this crucial juncture. For these past two years, the Sultan has been preparing for and celebrating nuptial ceremonies, Tipu informed the Governor General. It is his intention to be similarly employed for some time to come in accomplishing the marriage of seven sons. Boasting seven sons of marriageable age and evidently keen to sire yet more potential successors to his throne through new politic marriages among the Indian nobility, Tipu Sultan could, his letters hinted, well afford to sustain the occasional loss of young progeny to European captivity. British perceptions of the extent to which his paternal power boasted, uh, bolstered Tipu's political and military might were registered three years later on the eve of the Sultan's defeat and death in the Fourth Anglo-Mysore War. Seeking unsuccessfully to negotiate a peace before the storming of Tipu's fort, the British Commander-in-Chief, General Harris, stipulated that he would entertain Tipu's emissaries only if they were accompanied as hostages by four of Tipu's senior sons, so they've doubled the number of hostages by this point. Notwithstanding Tipu's loss of vast territories and revenues in the Treaty of Srinagar, the diplomatic states had more than doubled since the conclusion of the Third Anglo-Mysore War. The twofold political and reproductive function of the harem had played a central role in this process of escalation. By 1799, Tipu was the father of 12 surviving sons, five conceived since Cornwallis had taken the two young princes captive in 1792. Tipu's violent death at Srinagar in 1799 closed one chapter in the family politics of company rule only to open another. The British rapidly secured both his harem and that of his father, um, uh, containing his Hyderali's widows. Their commanding officer, uh, General David Baird, had himself served four weary years as a hostage to Hyderali in the Second Anglo-Mysore War, and he pointedly, quote, laid himself down to rest on a carpet in the veranda of the harem, thus ensuring by his presence, so his biographer claimed, the protection that he had promised to the helpless women and family of the dead Sultan. One by one, British forces took charge of Tipu's 12 surviving sons and his eight surviving daughters. Nominally both subject and abject, 
Tipu's 20 children, two wives, multitudinous concubines, and myriad servants and slaves, nonetheless posed a serious threat to public order in company India, as their extraordinary treatment as captives in the decades after 1799 makes clear. The company acted swiftly to remove these hostages from Sringapatam, the family seat of Tipu's power, imprisoning them over 200 miles to the northeast in the fort of Valor. But the sheer size of Tipu's surviving family, the worrying refusal of his harem to function as a sequestered private place, the opacity of princely kin relations to British observers, and the continued ability of Tipu's sons to serve as magnets for military disaffection, all reinforced the East India Company's tendency to scrutinize Indian politics through a familial lens in the years that followed. The imprisonment of Tipu's family at Valor from the summer of 1799 was an extraordinary tactic of rule. Never before in their conquest of India had the British locked an entire royal lineage into a fortress prison. The scale of the royal household was itself daunting. Tipu's eldest four sons alone had between them over 350 female kin, children, servants and slaves in their mahals. Together, their harems, the harems of both their father, Tipu, and their grandfather, Hyder Ali, and the households of their younger brothers numbered at least 1,600 persons. Another 1,800 loyal followers moved with the royal household to take up residence outside the fort at Valor. A logistical nightmare, the harem's relocation north was demanded in the company's analysis by the political complexion of princely family feeling. It was natural to suppose that the princes themselves must ever look upon the English as their enemies and the destroyers of royalty in their family, Captain Thomas Marriott wrote in one military memorandum. Marriott, who was an experienced military officer schooled in Indian languages and cultures, saw immuring the harems as the most effective mechanism for combating the threatening family formation that had underpinned Tipu's princely state. For, he concluded, the strongest tie we can have upon the princes is the possession of their families. So much as nature, strengthened by prejudice and Mussulmanic sense of honor, attached them to these women that I verily believe were the gates of the fort thrown open there to their individual flight, there is not one of them who would avail himself of the opportunity to escape. In the immediate aftermath of Tipu's fall, company officials sought to construct the women of his harem as objects, not subjects, of the sultan's despotic regime, as persons lacking agency, whose marital histories had already accustomed them to captivity and incapacitated them from individual acts. Edward Clive, governor of Madras, wrote to the governor-general in the summer of 1800 to moot this delicate question of whether the women should be returned by the company to their natal families, again, dis, um, disemboweling the family, essentially. Investigation confirms the well-known fact that the greater number of these unfortunate women have been forcibly torn from their families by Tipu, he reported. Most of the Hindu women in the Sultan's household, Thomas Marriott likewise concluded, had entered it under coercion at an early age. It came as something of a shock against this backdrop that the women imprisoned at Valor were agents of contention, intrigue, and at key moments, revolt. Education was much prized by Tipu, himself highly literate, and the senior ladies of his harem had accordingly been carefully instructed by tutors. 
When Thomas Marriott was charged with oversight of the Mahal, he was struck by the women's literacy and by their exacting demands. I found they complained of the eunuchs. I therefore desired them to commit their wishes to paper, which they have since continued to do, several of them having been exceedingly well educated in the Mahal. Their communications are very voluminous, he reported. His role as arbiter of the women's uh, endless variety of domestic disputes put Marriott at the coalface of harem politics for a decade. Tipu's senior widow, for example, intransigently refused to accept the company's pension. As she was to explain decades later, now 81 years old and in the midst of successful negotiations to convince the company to purchase her an elaborate tomb and to underwrite religious ceremonies in her honour, she had earlier repeatedly rejected the Governor General's pension because she was then very sorry for the death of her husband, Tipu Sultan, and the pension being offered was simply not suitable to her dignity. When their husbands reputed complicity in the 1806 mutiny of the law forced their relocation to Calcutta, the wives of Tipu's sons staged a mutiny of their own, refusing to continue their march under Marriott's charge to Calcutta until he made concessions about their status and finances. These are not women who are not capable of speaking and being heard. In all this, Tipu's harem followed in the footsteps of his family's formidable female forebears. In the mid-18th century, Hader Ali's mother, together with 200 women from his mahal, had travelled hundreds of miles to offer him encouragement in the battlefield. Controlling these women and containing Tipu's sons in the early 19th century was rendered exceptionally difficult by the fundamental illegibility of the family structures of which they formed integral components. Georgian diplomatic correspondence, spy reports, personal letters, printed biographies, and works of art are all united in their inability to ascribe stable identities to Tipu's lineage, his affines, and his kin. At his death, company officials were confident that Tipu had left one surviving widow, but they agreed that there might be two, occasionally thought there might be three, and acknowledged that countless concubines claimed, some with some credibility, to have been officially married to him. The complexities of Muslim marriage law, the inaccessibility of the harem's interior, and the active collusion of Tipu's ministers, his women and their sons, all combined to shield his remaining family from scrutiny and comprehension. The company's inability to determine which of the sons were, in English parlance, legitimate, much less which was Tipu's intended heir, was a cause of considerable consternation, even before the Sultan's death. In the aftermath of his defeat, the conspicuous failure to resolve the question of which son had been intended to see Tipu acquired new urgency. Fatih Haider, his eldest but reputedly illegitimate son, was named by several observers as the most likely intended successor. Others suggested that Moizuddin, the younger of the two hostage princes in 1792, who was reputedly legitimate in English terms and repeatedly described as light-skinned, was the more likely favourite. The outbreak of a military mutiny at the Fort of the Law in 1806 dramatically brought these anxieties to a head. The most violent and politically significant sepoy mutiny in the East India Company armies prior to the Great Uprising of 1857, this event saw Muslim soldiers stationed at the Lohr rise up against British officers and troops. 
leaving over 100 British and more than 600 sepoys dead, the mutiny was savagely repressed. It is interpreted today primarily as a violent protest against the company's ham-fisted efforts to modernize and westernize the Madras army. The trigger for the revolt was the introduction of a new military turban said to resemble a European hat. But the mutiny was explicitly understood at the time by the company's military officers as a native response to British efforts to refashion the Indian family. The government's official report concluded that the mutineers' actions were, quote, fermented by the political views of the family of Tipu. Regardless of the accuracy of this contemporary analysis, the Valor mutiny neatly encapsulated key components of princely family practice that posed persistent challenges to colonial rule. Marriage ceremonies for two of Tipu's daughters were in progress when the mutiny broke out, conveniently swelling the number of their brother's kin and followers legitimately present at the fort. Moisedin, the younger and favorite of Cornwallis's child hostages in 1792, emerged as the prime suspect. Significantly, his chief link with the mutineers and the most committed anti-British activist in the rebellion was his foster brother, presumably the son of his wet nurse. Moisedin had already, after the death of his father at the hands of the British in 1799, stripped the palanquin gifted to him of Cornwallis of its silver ornaments and presented it to an in-law, an act of uh, rebellion that resonates with Sir Charles Oakley's earlier rejection of Tipu's munificent gifts. Now, in 1806, at the outset of the mutiny, Tipu's son ostentatiously presented the leader of the Sepoy revolt with a gift of a fine sword, neatly reversing the symbolism of the sword he had presented to Cornwallis under duress at Srinagar as a child hostage. This was the Mughal gift regime run rogue. So, some conclusions. We see the princely family in the records of the East India Company, just as we see the harem, as through a glass darkly, but see it we must. Later 19th century European observers developed pervasive stereotypes of so-called oriental family forms, creating a paradigm that lacked regional, temporal, and cultural specificity, and collapsed the harem into a monolithic institution, everywhere the same, and everywhere outside the play of imperial politics. Attending to the ways in which harems and harem women, both seen and unseen, both real and imagined, featured in the records of the East India Company, requires us to revise that dominant and misleading representation. In South India, between the fall of the Mughal Empire and the onset of crown rule, harem politics were integral to aspiring princes' strategies of rule because the family was integral to the formation of their states. Seeking to understand the family as contemporaries understood it, rather than, rather than only in terms of the liberal nation states that claimed to supplant it under crown rule, does not remove the historical family from modern historians' concerns with governmentality, biopower, and the legibility of the state. But I think it does require us to ask rather different questions of and to find different approaches to these important topics. James C. Scott has distinguished between the illegibility of pre-modern and the legibility of modern states, arguing that legible bureaucratic processes endowed modern polities with overwhelming power relative to pre-modern, illegible polities. But the persistent intractable opacity of Tipu's family to the British 
reminds us that illegibility can also function within modernizing state systems such as taboos as an effective technology of power and resistance. Nor are neat distinctions between pre-modern and modern states adequate to the analytical task of interpreting British colonialism in India. Theorists such as Foucault have pointed out that the disciplinary institutions of biopower, that is, mechanisms by which basic biological features of the human species become the object of political strategy, are uniquely associated with modernity and its political handmaiden, the nation state. But both the Mughal and the Mysorean harem, dating from the 16th and the 18th centuries, displayed many of the characteristic features of Foucauldian biopower. Were they then modern? Or does Latour's concept of the amodern instead more successfully capture the foundational relationship between the family and the state in pre-colonial, colonial and perhaps post-colonial India by acknowledging the relatively minor divisions that separate Western and other European collectivities? If we follow the men, women and children of the East India Company family home from the subcontinent to Britain and take care to inspect their baggage, we can also see the essential a-modernity of the East India Company family and the East India Company state. Sir George and Lady Oakley, resident in Madras with their 11 children, an assortment of cousins and in-laws and Tipu's hostage sons, were only one among the many extended labyrinthine British family formations upon which the company's governmentality rested. The officials who wrestled with Tipu's unruly and complex structures of kin did not themselves preside over neatly nuclear modern family units, nor typically did they recognize the line between public and private as a barrier rather than as a connective tissue between family and state. Their use of the spoils of war to fashion the country homes they purchased and furnished with their imperial fortunes makes this point emphatically and visibly clear. General Harris, commander-in-chief when Tipu fell at Sungapatam in 1799, was not a heroic individual, but rather a quintessential company family man surrounded on the battlefield in India by his kinfolk. He entered into the battlefield with family members who included his eldest son and at least one nephew, as well as several cousins. Upon returning to his family and wife in Madras after battle, he celebrated the marriage of his private secretary to his eldest daughter. At home in Britain, the family's new heraldic motto displayed proudly amidst a wealth of oriental treasure at their newly acquired country estate in Kent was for prince and for country not for nation and for state. Lady Henrietta Clive, wife of the governor of Madras, was likewise an avid participant in the material politics of the British family diplomacy in India. She dragged her adolescent daughters along with her on an extensive tour of South India in 1800, taking them to visit Tipu's sons in captivity and acquiring Tipu's military attempt for Palace Castle in the Welsh borders, where it was used for entertaining guests at garden parties. The first Earl Minto, the Governor-General who oversaw the removal of Tipu's multitudinous family from Vellore to Calcutta in the aftermath of the mutiny in 1806, boasted a household at Government House in Calcutta that included three legitimate and one illegitimate sons, their wives, and an array of cousins, uncles, uh, nephews, nieces, and in-laws. He sent consignments of Asian goods home to his wife at Minto Castle that included porcelain, textiles, and an emancipated Malay slaves, slave. 
domesticating empire, whether through the careful display of diplomatic gifts and luxury commodities from India to China in the country house, or through the production in Britain of new commodities with orientalized motifs, did not demand great leaps of the colonial imagination. Rather, these processes of objectification reflected the persisted, persistent embeddedness of East India Company colonialism in the domestic materials of the family state. Thanks very much for your attention, and I welcome questions. Thank you.